Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. My guest today is John Fisher, CEO of Brandywine Photonics. And John, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on the program today. You're welcome, Tom. Tell me, first of all, what does Brandywine Photonics do? Okay, well, we uh, build weather satellites uh, for uh, measuring um, you know, near real-time weather as well as climate. Uh, so we're very excited to have several programs with uh, Air Force Research Labs and uh, NOAA on uh, this very topic. And how did you get involved in that? Okay, that's a bit of a story. So I left uh, Naval Research Labs uh, in 1999. Uh, and when the dot-com bubble burst, my consulting business, I decided to make uh, my first spectrometer in my spare bedroom. Uh, so that was for uh, ocean color imaging. And uh, that flew on uh, the uh, ISS uh, uh, from 2010 to uh, 2015 on the uh, hyperspectral imaging for coastal observing, observing mission. So uh, it was uh, quite an experience. And what's a spectrometer? Okay, um, so if you can imagine, um, you know, we see light in uh, three colors, uh, red, green, and blue, uh, and color cameras have a, a second green band. Uh, uh, a, a spectrometer, um, imaging spectrometer specifically, uh, we'll see um, that image in 32, 128, uh, many different colors, uh, much, uh, uh, and be able to tell um, information about what you're looking at from those uh, from that spectral fingerprint. So how do the small satellites that you build compare to the large birds like the GOES satellite that's used by NOAA? Oh, well, that's, uh, um, it's very interesting. Um, as you know, uh, these uh, GOES satellites and uh, what's called the Joint Polar um, uh, Satellite System, uh, they, they're providing, you know, absolutely critical uh, weather information uh, you know, which really impact our daily lives. However, these are, you know, billion dollar missions. Um, the uh, JPSS was a mission of four satellites was uh, $16 billion. And uh, the planned uh, GEO-XO uh, mission is uh, going to be around 12 to $20 billion. And uh, that's, that's going to be a, a un unaffordable, um, or at least uh, put a, a difficult uh, crunch on the number of satellites you can launch. Uh, small satellites, uh, as the ones that uh, Brandywine Photonics is uh, building, uh, or more specifically, the uh, cameras and the spectrometers we're building for uh, commercial satellites, um, their, their cost is in the uh, $30 million range. And uh, that uh, allows us to launch many more satellites uh, and many more observations of many different types. Uh, for example, um, you know, JPSS uh, 1 and 2, uh, they'll have a revisit time of six hours. Uh, mm -hmm. So you'll, you know, you'll need to, you know, if you're landing your F-16 on an on a aircraft carrier, you may wait six hours landing it uh, based on data that's six hours old. Whereas small satellites, you can launch much more of them and get uh, data latencies on the order of an hour or half hour. And frankly, if I was landing an aircraft uh, in a uh, you know, tight crosswinds on an aircraft carrier, I would want my data to be as fresh as possible. 
Well, and very few F-16s have a six-hour loiter time to wait to land on an aircraft carrier. So yeah, so they use um, a lot of in-situ data, um, but with um, you know SpaceX reducing launch costs, um, companies like Blue Canyon and New York, uh, and new emerging companies providing very uh, affordable spacecraft buses. Um, you know, the bus is essentially the framework, and the, the camera or the inner instrument is what measures the data. Um, when they're providing these at a very affordable rates, it allows um, more frequent data as well as higher resolution um, and more resiliency. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, there's a, a tight um, space race um, uh, between uh, US and China, and there's a, a great deal of concern of what would happen um, to, a, to a US uh, economic security were one of our weather satellites, um, these very exquisite high performance flagships uh, to you know, be no longer functioning due to nefarious um, activities or even just a piece of space junk. Space junk is something we can talk about in just a little bit because we've just recently done a, a pretty major story on, on the whole space junk situation. But I, I want to go back and just clarify. So we're talking basically about CubeSats with, uh, with uh, Brandywine Photonics? Oh, uh, CubeSats are one of my dirty words. <laughs> You know, uh, there's sorry a, a about big, that. There's a big misconception. I've seen you know NASA presentations uh, um, extolling the virtues of CubeSats, and uh, frankly, um, there, there, there's some uses in the RF realm, uh, like uh, GPS RO radial occultation. Uh, there's some good uses there, um, and some uh, deployable antennas for the microwave for single band uh, to do the microwave sounding. Uh, sounding is just measuring the vertical profile wind and temperatures. It's a critical measurement. Mm -hmm. However, um, if you talk to any uh, satellite manufacturer, small and large, uh, thermal considerations are the key driver, uh, absolutely the key driver. And aperture, um, the larger the aperture, the larger the light bucket to collect, collect your photons, uh, the more signal you need. So our focus is on uh, ESPA class. Uh, ESPA class is at a, st a standard launch um, interface. And that is in the 200 kilogram to, well, 100 kilogram to 300 kilogram range. Okay. So these are serious satellites. Uh, it's not uh, a university uh, toy um, and five-year life, mission life. So really comparable. You mentioned the term hyperspectral. What is that and why is it important? Well, uh, hyperspectral imaging um, is merely uh, taking many bands, measuring many different colors. And uh, as you can, uh, and be able to tell the, um, uh, looking at individual signatures, um, for example, and it's broken up into two main areas. One is in um, uh, meteorology, uh, weather. Uh, and there you're, we make hyperspectral measurements with our uh, CHISI instrument, the Compact Hyperspectral Infrared Sounding Interferometer. Sorry for the long acronym. <laughs> but uh, CHISI makes measurements in the infrared. Uh, and uh, so from that, able to tell, you know, the uh, wind, you know, temperature and moisture profiles, uh, doing some fancy science uh, versus altitude, very important um, for anticipating weather. The other end of the hyperspectral, which we've flown for um, uh, land and ocean, uh, is um, in the visible and shortwave infrared. And you look at programs like uh, surface biology and geology, uh, which is a new NASA program. Uh, and that solicitation came out last month. Uh, that's looking at um, uh, 
health of vegetation, uh, harmful algal blooms, more surface measurements that are critical to um, agriculture and um, uh, marine resources. So is your work mostly government contracts or do you also work in the private sector? Well, uh, almost all of our work is in government now. Uh, Air Force Research Labs, um, Naval Research Labs, uh, NOAA, uh, and NASA. So those are our primary customers now. But this year we've seen a big change. Uh, we've seen a lot of interest from uh, weather analytics companies and data analytics companies. So it's been, a, um, uh, as you've you know, seen the recent um, special purpose acquisition corporations, mm -hmm. uh, big jump there. Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, uh, inflow of uh, investment into earth observation, uh, among other things. And we're seeing a, a lot of interest from that area to take, essentially take NASA technology and make it affordable for the average um, uh, data analytics company. So does that mean you're working in partnership with the, uh, the technology transfer uh, program in conjunction with NASA? Um, there's, we haven't worked with tech transfer um, just because the best tech transfer happened like I was tech transferred. You need to tech transfer the people, not just the technology. So much of the technology, um, for example, when we did hyperspectral ocean oceanography, we licensed um, a patent from uh, NASA JPL. Um, but now there's a lot of open literature uh, out there that um, we really take the ideas and use our own internal research and development uh, to expand upon it and create new technology. You know, people say that climate is what you expect and weather is what you find. So with all the interest in climate change, does Brandywine Photonics help measure and understand climate change or is your business more weather related? Uh, well, I, I would say it's both. Um, okay. You know, uh, weather, uh, yeah, weather data observations are what you're measuring now. So it's both the effects of climate change on what you're measuring now. For example, um, uh, frosts in the, you know, freezes in Texas due to collapse of the uh, polar vortex, which was a, had some contribution from, they believe from, uh, uh, changes in the atmospheric um, uh, winds, uh, and as well as the wildfires. So we're, we're both measuring, um, you know, the effects on the weather due to, you know, long-term climate change, as well as making observations, uh, which will improve climate models. Uh, for example, the, uh, our infrared sounder, the technology for measuring weather, well, a byproduct is measuring greenhouse gases. Um, so it's the same technology, uh, but it's uh, used in, uh, for different in different uh, models, some for weather models, some in climate models, uh, to provide that um, uh, to serve both markets. What do you do besides weather? Do you use this technology for other kinds of Earth observation, or are you strictly in the weather business? Uh, well, we do. Um, a lot of many people don't realize that um, the uh, Department of Defense is relies critically on weather observations. And um, sadly, uh, that has, can I use the word bungled? Um, uh, the uh, DMSP is uh, falling out of the sky, uh, being decommissioned in two to three years. And it's a big question mark uh, as reported on Space News, whether uh, there will be a replacement. Uh, so we're involved in the um, DOD aspects uh, for weather observations. 
uh, and trying to get uh, new technology into the uh, warfighters' hands uh, uh, for uh, better um, uh, mission planning. Uh, is, you know, weather is you know a key critical part of that. Um, also, we have um, we're the same technology in our mirror designs and spectrometer designs uh, are very useful for um, uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance uh, ISR. Uh, so uh, we see our um, worst best way to describe Brandywine Photonics is a, a small version of Maxar or Bolar Aerospace. Um, you know, uh, companies always, some companies start small and we're one of those. So ISR, um, space situa situational awareness and um, uh, weather and climate uh, are all really based upon a lot of the same uh, optical technologies that uh, we are developing. As a small company, what kind of, of challenges have you faced in getting a foothold in the industry and getting people to pay attention to you? Uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, like all small businesses, uh, cash flow is a concern. Um, you know, uh, contracts ends, and what do you do if the next contract is delayed two months? Uh, you know, we've uh, um, it can take to up to a year between doing a, a for example, our NOAA uh, contract. Um, you know, with a sounder set, um, they loved our, you know, uh, our MetNet uh, mission. Uh, loved the technology, the, you know, 42 satellites making equivalent measurements to the current uh, uh, observations at a fraction of the price. But it's going to be over a year between the end of a contract and when the next one starts. Uh, so contracting is one of our biggest hurdles. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, agility uh, is a, a big advantage. So I, I would say that's probably the uh, biggest one um, we face. Did you work in particular with any uh, incubators or particular investors that helped you get, get the company, if you'll pardon this pun, off the ground? Uh, well, I tried to get a partner when I started <laughs> and he didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I have poor family. <laughs> My father was a, a truck driver growing up. So I don't have any uh, Harvard classmates, uh, graduate of Penn State University. And uh, so we're, we're entirely bootstrapped. Um, uh, me and my wife uh, are the sole owners and we're having uh, our employees uh, join us in uh, some of the uh, equity sharing. Uh, but so it's been, uh, we're just outside of Philadelphia. So I, I think Brandywine Photonics is like Rocky in the eighth round, in, you know, <laughs> Apollo Creed. So I've taken my lumps, uh, sequester was brutal. Uh, we hit the mat on that one. Um, but now um, we're, you know, um, getting stronger, climbing those uh, staircase, uh, the staircase up to the art museum. We're talking with John Fisher. He's the CEO of Brandywine Photonics on the Xterra podcast. And John, let's talk about some of the information that you gather. Is your information gathering done in real time or is it data that takes kind of a state of the world measurement for comparison to other data over time? So uh, that's a good uh, question, Tom. Um, well, our first launch is um, in 2022 with a multi-spectral imager uh, for one of our um, uh, Air Force Research Labs uh, customers. Uh, that will take um, an instrument called a theater weather imaging cloud characterization sensor. Um, we went through a small business innovative research grant, so SBIR. That will um, that will initially will just take you know it'll take a little while to get from um, you know shutter closed 
to process data, probably about an hour um, from downlink. Uh, but our objective for MetNet is, I'll call it weather at the speed of light. Why do you want to wait, you know, six hours for your data mm -hmm. or even uh, an hour? You want that data right away. So there's a, a big advance by a space development agency for uh, optical intersatellite links. And we hope to leverage that and other similar platforms to give uh, our nation real-time weather data. So do you see as part of your customer base, companies like uh, the Weather Channel and others that are providing online uh, consumer grade weather information to folks? Um, I, I see that um, a lot of these uh, organizations, uh, they're very consumer uh, facing and mm -hmm. we'll probably feed into the, I'll call the middle market. Um, companies like Atmospheric Environmental Research um, and uh, other uh, weather, weather analytics companies. And um, it's really gonna be transformed, um, the marketplace. Uh, what we see the future is uh, what we call MetMarket, which is an open data platform for weather and climate observations. Who else is on your team? Uh, well, we have um, uh, at Brandywine, we have a, um, uh, uh, seven technology, uh, seven uh, technical experts uh, and three uh, co-ops. So a small team of 10 people. Uh, so it's very exciting. Uh, you have to be multi-talented. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lens designer by training. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a big change from you know, going to uh, run, you know, running a company and doing uh, cybersecurity uh, for part of my time. So that's our, and we have other um, uh, companies as part of the uh, MetNet Alliance. Uh, our Met, the MetNet Alliance, uh, and welcome to anyone out there in the audience, um, is a, I'll call a loose confederation of uh, uh, small businesses and a few large ones uh, whose uh, passion is for measuring weather data. And we all have our own swim lanes. We have a, a partner for microwave, partner for weather analytics, uh, one for GPSRO, uh, radar occultation, and, um, and then detector suppliers, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the secret sauce. What, <clears throat> excuse me, what capabilities and facilities does Brandywine possess to help your customers achieve their goals? Uh, well, last year, um, a year and a half ago, we were just a, an office with a couple of desks. And this year uh, we have, uh, we built our own clean room. We moved into new facilities. Uh, we built our own clean room uh, and uh, built uh, our own uh, thermal vacuum chamber uh, and our own lens assembly and telescope assembly. Um, we did this, we could have bought it, um, but um, we're cheap <laughs> and uh, you know, like all bootstrapping. Uh, and um, also uh, infrared technology is, is a different beast. Um, it really is difficult and it requires a lot of specialty equipment uh, to uh, measure multiple instruments simultaneously in the, in the vacuum of space or simulated vacuum of space. When you talk about that kind of technology, what John do you kind of foresee uh, as the next technology that will come along that will help out in weather observation is uh, you talk about infrared I know there's microwave and there are many many ways that they can measure those things but what do you see coming down the pike okay there's uh, different aspects uh, I see um, from I'll, I'll go from the aperture down through the data system uh, apertures uh, we see things growing larger not cubes okay. we're going we're going to fill up that fairing if you can <laughs> give me a 12 million dollar launch I'm going to make that aperture as big as possible. Uh, okay. So, you know, we're looking at 50 centimeter to one meter apertures. Uh, 
you know, so go big or go home is our uh, approach um, while still being affordable. So it's that price performance um, uh, cost uh, trades. The other is uh, detectors. Um, it said that uh, a satellite is just a detector with um, just a couple other things around it called optics and spacecraft bus. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're uh, developing new detectors with uh, some of our partners um, for infrared, um, uh, infrared sounding. Uh, the other is, um, of course, the spacecraft bus, which mainly um, thermal engineering. Um, cryogenics and thermal engineering are the key technologies, uh, long-life cryocoolers. And lastly, um, I can't uh, leave a talk without uh, saying, uh, mentioning uh, AI, machine learning, and uh, Internet of Things. Uh, that's a key technology, which really, um, when... When you're doing, a, I'll call physics-based modeling, um, you have to have an exquisite spacecraft uh, and you want everything perfect, like GOES and GeoXO. But when you have um, you know, 40 satellites, then machine learning and AI takes off. It's, it's the best thing possible. You merge different data sources, whether stratospheric platforms, buoys, um, different modalities um, of you know, limb and nadir observations. Uh, and you put all the, you know, the data into the soup and you date something that uh, tastes great and you don't know why. We talked for a moment earlier about space junk and CubeSats and small satellites and the amount of, I've seen estimates that range from 23,000 to 26,000 objects the size of a softball or larger uh, in low Earth orbit at this time. How does that affect what it is that you're trying to do? What, uh, I hear about, you know, the terrestrial telescopes can't shoot through all the space junk that's up there. What's it like coming from the other direction? Uh, it's, it should be scary for the United States. Um, our weather architecture. Um, we are relying, we are one, you know, marble away from losing key weather observations. Um, you know, if something hits the JPSS, you know, um, in a critical area that's, uh, or goes, um, it's, it's not going to be pretty. Um, uh, what happens to our, you know, observations of hurricanes. Um, so that's why one of the key roles of uh, our MetNet constellation is have a disaggregated architecture where if one satellite should be lost, um, then there's another one that either is right behind it, literally, or can be launched within you know, a few months. So uh, resilience is one of the key aspects of uh, the MetNet uh, small weather satellite architecture. You talked a little bit ago about launch costs as well, and we've all seen those launch costs continue to fall with SpaceX obviously in the mix. Uh, companies like Rocket Lab that are doing some interesting things in launches and, and getting uh, getting their, their spacecraft reusable. With those dramatic drops in launch costs and the cost of space technology dropping overall, are you looking at an increase in demand for the specific and specialized weather data as it, uh, as it uh, applies to space launches? Yeah, I, I would say it's more um, an enabler. Um, if your launch was $60 million or $120 million, you're gonna spend a lot of time and effort in making the most, you know, a class B mission. Uh, which is in NASA technology is, you know, pretty much uh, um, dying your eyes and crossing your T's, you know, a thousand times. Uh, huge, uh, you spend 10 times as much on mission assurance as you do on the satellite, um, uh, making sure there are absolutely no errors. But, you know, uh, 
if, if your uh, satellite can fail or the launch can fail, you just launch up another one. So now that enables um, um, launching lots of small satellites. And if it blows up on the pad, no big deal, you, you launch another one. Um, and uh, allows disaggregation, launching lots of satellites into lots of different orbits. Um, for example, the AM orbit is really in dire need. Uh, we're gonna lose uh, two of the pose weather satellites uh, decommissioning after you know, you know, over 10 years and lose DMSP. Uh, and you know, the lower cost um, launch allows um, experimentation, um, trying something new. Whereas traditionally NOAA wasn't allowed to try anything new because their operational mission and they, failure was not an option. Where um, with the lower cost, failure should not just be an option. It should be a necessity for learning. That's what Elon Musk says often is that uh, space is hard and he expects to blow some up before he actually gets some, before he actually gets it right. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, but you know, that, ha that mentality hasn't been accepted by the payload um, sponsors. That, that makes sense. No one wants to see their payload blow up on top of, a, of an experimental rocket. Yeah, but um, the, the problem has been that, you know, NASA is always, you know, for example, I heard, heard a NASA official say, um, uh, that, you know, scientists will spend their whole lives on one mission. And that's just plain wrong. You know, buy two satellites. This is simple. I mean, it's so simple. Plan on building two satellites. The first one launches and it's imperfect and it's a test tech demo. Great, you learn. And then you launch the next one. And it's going to be, you know, 5% of the price as if you only built one. John, we ask this of, of all of our guests, and I'll ask you as well to look out, if you will, over the next 10 years in space commerce and, and your role in that and tell me what you see. Um, well, I see um, a lot more NASA, um, uh, NASA giving up more of the Earth, Earth observation responsibilities. Uh, you know, frankly, you know, uh, missions like SPG, um, they could do, be easily done by commercial. Um, so a lot more of the Earth observations uh, will be done at a fraction of the price. So what Elon Musk has done for launch, I believe uh, there'll be um, a host of companies, not just one, but um, you know, 10, 20, 30 Earth observation companies that will do the same uh, that, not, that Elon Musk has done for, and SpaceX have done for launch. These companies will do the same for uh, Earth observation. And Brandywine's uh, photonics role uh, with our MetNet Alliance partners uh, will be uh, to provide our nation uh, with um, uh, to be able to measure the whole Earth everywhere, all the time, in near real time. That sounds like a great place to close. John Fisher, CEO of Brandywine Photonics, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, Tom. We've been talking with John Fisher, CEO of Brandywine Photonics. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Find us on the web at xterrajsc.com. And be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.